Amen. We do have a good and a kind and a loving God, and it is so good to worship Him together. Uh, those of us in the room and those of us joining online, uh, what a gift it is that we have to come into the presence of the Lord. We are starting a brand new series today called Gospel Friends. How many of us know the importance of a good friend, right? Like we, we need good friends, amen. We desperately have to have good friends in our life. I'll tell you this, even the most introvert of introverts who just want to go spend some time in a closet know that we need some good friends in our lives. You know, the world knows this too. And the world is looking for good friends. And our desperate need for friendship has so permeated our culture, it's gotten into all of the stories that we tell. Now, I just turned 40 this year. And for the last 40 years, one thing I've noticed about our culture is that the, most of the stories that we've told in my lifetime have happened on one of these, right? In movies and in television shows. And I've discovered in my lifetime, as I was growing up of a child of the 80s and 90s, that there were lots and lots and lots of stories, aka television shows, that were centered on friendship. And those stories have gotten ingrained in our minds. And to prove a point, I want to do a little game. Is it okay if we have some fun in church this morning? I want to do a little game with us today. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say a phrase from a theme song of a television show, and you shout back to me what television show that is. All right, we good? All right, here's the first one. You wanna go where everybody knows your name. Cheers, right? We want a place where we belong, where everybody knows your name. Cheers uh, taught us the truth that we all need community where we can just be who we are and accepted. Right. All right. Here's number two. All right. You did really good on number one. Number two. So no one told you life was going to be this way. Friends. Right. Like I grew up in the 90s with this ensemble giving us a story. I'm not sure it was always a good story or a true story, but giving us a story about what lifelong friendship could be. All right. Here's number three. All right. You did really good on the first two. Thank you for being a friend. Golden Girls, right? Uh, I can remember uh, growing up in the 80s and watching this, and I probably shouldn't have watched some of this, but I remember seeing these ladies commit themselves to one another in friendship. Now, this is kind of fun, but I bring this up because I want us to understand two things that are happening in our world. The stories that our culture is telling is number one, mirroring and reflecting what's happening in the culture. So it is a picture of us, for us, of how people think and what the people are pursuing. But there's something happening at the very same time is that these stories are also shaping our culture and the way that we think and what we pursue. And the culture that we live in has been driving the narrative about what friendship looks like. And what I want to call us to today as a church is let the church recover the storytelling when it comes to what is a good friend supposed to look like. 
Because, why? We have the greatest friend who's ever walked the earth, who is unendingly and without boundary for us and working on our behalf for our good. In truth and in love, in Jesus, our Savior. We should be the very best friends out there. And the whole world is looking for a good friend. How many of us are looking for some good friends in life, right? And the truth about this is, is if you want to have good friends, you've got to be a good friend. So church, let's be good friends. So what does that look like? That's what we're going to explore this whole month, is what does it look like to be a good friend rooted in the gospel that God came down and did what we couldn't do, that he bore our sin, he dealt with it once and for all on the cross, and he rose from the dead that we could have the hope of eternal life and walk with him. What does it look like to be friends rooted in that truth? Next week, we're going to talk about the reality that a gospel friend is present in pain. That we don't shy away from it, that we're willing to be there present in it. The week after that, we're going to talk about how gospel friends seek peace. We're actually going to touch on those two things a little bit today, but, but center in week two, week three on uh, gospel friends seek peace. And then finally, we're going to wrap this series up talking about gospel friends conquer evil with good. We have a good God who's always at work. We never lose hope and we're always working for good by the power of Jesus. But today we're going to build a foundation talking about the truth that a gospel friend is humble. Good friends engage other people in humility. Why? Because Jesus, the best friend that you will ever have. Let me just say. Right? If you're trying to build healthy relationships in your life, start with Jesus. Right? Now, don't just know about him. Get to know him. Let him know you. Do life with him. Submit to him. Seek him with everything you have and let him transform your life. And then let that get into every relationship you have. But he's the best friend that we could ever have. And he's led the way teaching us true humility. One of my favorite passages on humility comes in Paul's letter to the Philippians. In our Bibles, it's Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And this is what Paul wrote. In your what? Relationships. Right? In your connections and community, in your friendships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This word mindset, it literally means an attitude, a worldview. It means a way of being. It's heart, mind, and soul. Jesus had a way of being about him. I love that the early church did not first call themselves Christians. They first called themselves the way. They had a way about them that was rooted in the way, the mindset of Jesus. And Paul says, get in the way, of the mindset, the attitude of Jesus. And what was that? who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Uh, the original language says he did not grasp onto it. He had the rights as God, but he let it go to serve. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he, there it is, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And when he humbled himself, what happened? Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. 
That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That even though Jesus had every right as God, he let it go and he came down and he took on the form. The word is morphe, it's essence. He was fully humble. This wasn't just some kind of humble brag. He wasn't just acting humble. He was truly humble in every way and submitted himself to the Father. And as he humbled himself, what happened? God elevated him. What would it look like for us as followers of Jesus to be willing to humble ourselves? And I don't mean just act like we're humble or want to be humble or say we're humble. I mean truly submit ourselves in service to others and let God do the lifting. Now, why is it that Jesus could do this? It's because he fully loved God and he fully trusted God. And we can enter into the way of Jesus as we do those two things, as we fully love God. He's beautiful, he's magnificent, he's wonderful, he is truth, he is love, he is all things worth pursuing and we can love him fully. And we can trust God. He is for me. He is powerful. He is faithful. He has a perfect track record. He has never failed me or let me down. And I can trust him. And as I love him and trust him, I can humble myself and serve God and serve others. But what gets in the way? What gets in the way for us? It's pride. All right? Now, what is pride? A simple definition of pride is simply thinking too much of myself. Now the opposite of that, if we're gonna pursue humility, was to think of myself less, right? Now notice I didn't say think less of myself, it's think of myself less, that we walk away from this self-centered way of being that, that our way so often is focused on me, myself, and I. That's pride. Now pride has two ends to it. Now, we, we often think about the one which is arrogance. It's puffed up, right? Like, I'm, I'm so good, I'm so great. Or, right, sometimes we kind of start to flirt with arrogance and we say something like, well, at least I'm not like them over there. Right? And it's funny to me that we always choose like the worst possible case scenario to say that, like, at least I'm not a mass murderer, right? Like, <laughs> And we kind of puff ourselves up. But the opposite of that is also pride in self-pity or abasement. Like we put ourselves in the basement and we say like, I'm not going to be good enough. I'm not worthy. I'm not valuable. But in either one of those scenarios, what are we doing? We're putting all the focus on me. Either look at how great I am or somebody help me feel better. And we need to walk away from pride and pursue the heart of God, which is humility. So how do we diagnose where we're living in pride or whether we're pursuing humility? Well, here's a simple test. As we look for pride, pride says, number one, that the world revolves around me, right? All right, show of hands, who would say the world revolves around me? No, we're not gonna do that, right? Nobody's gonna willingly say like, I am so self-centered, like look out. Nobody does that, but let me ask you a question. When things change in your world, Who's the first person you think about? There's a change at work, a new boss, a new structure, a new policy. And we ask, well, how's that gonna affect 
Come on. How's that going to affect me? Right? Uh, something happens in your home, in your family. Maybe somebody passes away or uh, somebody moves away or you got to move to a new place or just there's a significant change in your family life. And we say, well, I wonder how this is going to impact me. Or how many of us in the last year, as we look at changes and who's in power and authority in Washington and other places, and we say, I wonder how this is going to impact me. Right? Very few of us would the first thought be, I wonder how this is going to impact my neighbor whose life is very different from mine. <laughs> Who has a different perspective from me. I wonder how this is going to impact them. No, we say, how is this going to change my life? That's pride. The world revolves around me. We need to point that out and, and submit it to God and say, Lord, do something in me. A second thing that pride says is I deserve. And I deserve better. I deserve honor. I deserve respect. I deserve love. Or we say it's close cousin. I don't deserve. You shouldn't treat me that way. And where's our focus? On me. We've got to be able to point out those places of pride so that we can let God do something about it. But we want to pursue humility. Well, what is humility? Humility says, number one, because I'm already loved, I can think about others. Where pride says the world is centered on me, humility says God has already taken care of me. I'm already loved. I'm already worthy. I'm already pursued. That Jesus has finished it. It is done. He has come to me. He has given me life. He's got a hope and a plan and a future for me. He's preparing a place for me. And my world is going to be okay. And because my world is going to be okay, I can think about others. Number two, humility says... God gives me grace that I don't deserve so I can give grace to others. Where pride says, I deserve something, humility says, you know what I didn't deserve was the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance from God. I didn't deserve the life that he's given me. I didn't deserve to be joined with him by the power of his Holy Spirit. I don't deserve a home in heaven for eternity. I don't deserve to come into the holy presence of God, but God gave me his grace and he gave me his mercy and he pursued me when I wasn't pursuing him. And because of that truth, I can give grace to others. That's what humility says. And so we've got to be willing to say, Lord, help me. That just like Jesus, I will love you fully and I will trust you fully to point out those places of pride in me and pursue humility. That I can think of others and I can give grace and, and I can be the very best friend that anybody could ever have because I am rooted in your love that's already here. We pursue humility together. So what would this look like tangibly in our friendships? Well, Paul goes on this thread about humility and he lays out for us, this is what our gospel friendships rooted in humility might look like in Romans chapter 12. I encourage you to, to turn in your Bibles. I want us to look at, at what Paul has to say. Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 16. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Look at this. Four things Paul lifts up. He says, bless and do not curse. 
right? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Then mourn with those who mourn and live in harmony with one another. And finally, be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be proud and thinking you're better than. Don't take your, your life as if it's the most important thing. And he lifts up these four uh, pursuits for us that we can do this. We can love other people humbly and be the very best friends in the world. All right, so let's take a deep dive. Number one, verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So what does that mean? It means that we've got to be prepared to give grace. Be prepared to give grace. In other words, be ready before you need to be. Now, what does that mean? Many, many moments in my life where someone has hurt me, maybe they've said something, maybe they did something or they didn't follow through with something. Maybe they're just not anything necessarily to me, but just I'm frustrated by, by who they are. Like, be honest, we all have those people in our life, right? And if you don't, then you might be that person. But we, we have those things that rub up against us and we get irritated and frustrated and angry. And what's our first emotion? Is it to bless them and pray for them? No. All right, like get out of my space. Uh, I'm gonna make you stop doing what you're doing. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, bless them. And if you're anything like me, if I wait until I need to do it, I'm not gonna be able to do it. The frustration is going to take over, the irritation, the emotion, the angry is going to overwhelm what I know God wants me to do. And I'm going to live in the flesh and I'm going to do what feels good in that moment than rather than what I want to do in the long term. And I, I fail. But if I can be prepared ahead of time, Lord, give me a heart and a mind and a soul that is ready to give grace. So before your coworker does something that hurts your feelings or, or they cut the legs out from under you, say, God, help me to have a mind and a heart to forgive them when it comes because I know it might come. Before your spouse drives you insane, say, God, give me a heart to, to pour grace on them before that moment comes. Before your children disobey you for the 17th time, say, God, give me grace for these little people you put in my life to watch over Prepare my heart ahead of time so that in the moment I've already committed to choose you so that I can follow through. The second thing that Paul says, verse 15, he says, rejoice with those who rejoice. In other words, celebrate the wins of others. Celebrate when other people have good things that come into their world when, when something positive happens for them in their life, that we would step into their world and say, good for you, and I'm grateful, I'm celebrating, I'm, I'm just giving thanks for what God has done in your life. Can we just have a moment of serious, like looking in our own hearts and souls for a second? If I am unable to celebrate with someone else when good happens in their life, there's a place in me that needs some healing. If their win makes me uneasy, there's a brokenness in me that needs some attention. 
And I'm not talking about when people do something unethical or wrong and they get good for it. I'm just talking about like people in our world, when good things happen, and we're like, well, why didn't that happen to me? Right? We're Eeyore over here and we're like, well. When God calls us to, to celebrate with others, rejoice with people who rejoice. And you know what we do when we do that? As we say, you matter. You have worth and value and enough so that I'm gonna celebrate with you. Cause just like misery loves company, so does celebration. And nobody wants to celebrate alone. And so we come with humility saying, God has got this. God has taken care of my world. And you might look like you're a step ahead of me, but so what? God's got this. And so I can celebrate with you in humility. But there's another side of that as well. That just as we celebrate that we would work for peace. Look at what it says in verses 15 and 16. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. That we seek peace with each other in heartache and in difficulty. And there's a couple of aspects to this. One of those is that we're willing to seek peace when people are grieving and hurting and struggling. That we'd be present with them in pain. We're going to talk about that in these weeks ahead. It doesn't mean you have to fix it. It doesn't mean you have to have answers. It doesn't mean that you have to make it go away. So much of life is hurtful and painful and difficult and you can't make it go away. And we often hurt ourselves and others in our attempt to do so. Just be present in the pain to bring a peace of comfort that goes beyond understanding. Another way that we can seek peace with others is to seek peace in dissension or seek peace in our own struggle. That so much of the time, what I'm guilty of is when, when I'm hurt, when I'm struggling, when things are difficult or frustrating, I react with emotion rather than responding with truth. God, help me to be a person of peace that I don't react emotionally. God, help me to, to be a person who's seeking you in your word, praying and listening so that your Holy Spirit gets ahead of me, that I can pause for a second. One of the phrases I love to say is practice the pause. Right, just practice, God, let me silence this mouth for a second. <laughs> now, what is it you want me to respond with? And I don't want to react emotionally, but, but I want to react based on your truth. And then finally, I think we can seek peace as we seek to be flexible in uncertainty. Because here's what happens, at least for me, I think it's probably true for all of us. When uncertainty comes, I get scared. When I can't wrap my arms around it and plot out what's step two, three, four, and five, and I'm not sure what's coming, and I don't know what it's gonna cost me, and I don't know what the, the cost is gonna be or how it's gonna hurt or what the difficulty will be, and I'm just not sure, I get scared. And when I get scared, I wanna hold on more tightly. And, and I wanna wrap my arms around it, and I wanna get all that control, and I get rigid. And when we're rigid, we don't bring peace. When we're rigid, where are our eyes focused? On me. I'm not sure what's happening out there, God, so I better take care of me because nobody else is going to take care of me. I got to take care of me. And so it better be my way or the highway. It, we, you better listen to me. And we start saying things like, well, I deserve. And how's this going to affect me? 
And what would it look like for us in the midst of uncertainty to walk with people and lead the way and give an example of being flexible? I, I borrowed this uh, from another speaker who said, blessed are the flexible so they will not be bent out of shape. <laughs> Isn't that true? That we would seek peace with each other as we seek, just, you know what, God's got this. It doesn't mean be irresponsible or lazy. It just means whatever God does, we're going to walk with him and we're going to be willing to shift lanes or shift direction. And we encourage each other with hope as we do that. So we work for peace. And then finally, Paul says, just don't take yourself so seriously. How many of us would be guilty of that? Paul says in verse 16, do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low positions. Do not be conceited. I think if Paul were here, he would say, stop taking yourself so seriously. Because here's what I know about all of us. For every single one of us, no matter how arrogant or puffed up we might find ourselves in any given moment, you are not as important as you think you are. And neither am I. But the flip side is also true. When we're broken and we've messed up and we failed, you are not as broken as you think you are. You are not out of the reach of grace or redemption or restoration or new life. God sent his son that all of that could be healed in Jesus' name. That when he went to the grave, he rose again. That death is not a final sentence for us. That failure is not the end of it all. But we have hope in Jesus and we can step anew into a new day. And so we don't take ourselves so seriously in our successes or our failures. That when we get so fixated on our wins and our successes, we forget those people who have walked with us to help us to get where we are. We forget that we've got a merciful and loving God who could have brought wrath, but he brought grace and he's got good things that he's brought into our lives. And when we take ourselves so seriously and fixate on our failures and our mistakes, rather than believing that I'm forgiven and claiming that forgiveness and repenting and changing direction and pursuing God again, when we just get stuck in it, we forget that God has growth for us and we can learn from those mistakes and we can let go of shame and step into freedom. See, when we fixate on ourselves, either in our success or our failure, we're missing out on two things that God desperately wants for us, growth and gratitude. He wants you to grow through your failures, not get stuck in it. And he wants you to have gratitude in the wins and successes of your life. And if you had to boil this down just to one truth, Jonathan, give me the one thing that I can walk out today and focus on this. It's just simply get my eyes off of me and on Jesus. Stop fixating on me and get my eyes on Jesus and follow him because as I follow him, I will become a gospel friend rooted in humility who can walk with others and lift them up, not focus on what I deserve or what I get, but lifting them up in every circumstance. And church, we should be leading the way. Not a TV show, not an activity. You know, the, what grieves my heart is that when I, I talk to people outside of the church, they're desperately looking for friendship, but the church is on the end of their list. 
They're, they're looking for a, a, an athletic group or an acting group or a music group or some activity or they're looking at work or they're looking at the bars or they're looking at some other place. Because somehow, some way, we have missed the mark. I'll never forget my first year in ministry. I had befriended this young man. He was 20 years old. And he was in and out of church and he was trying to, to find his way. And at 20 years old, he was already struggling with alcoholism. And we built a friendship over that first year. And finally, some walls were broken down and, and we finally had a real honest conversation. And he said something to me that I, I'll never forget. He said, Jonathan, I can go into a bar and have a friend in a half hour. I've been in church my whole life and I don't know that I've ever found a true friend. And why is that? Because somewhere along the way, we started to believe that we have to have it all together. And we stopped trusting in Jesus and fully loving him. And we started to depend on ourselves. And we look around and we say, you can't know me because then you might know the junk. And we stiff arm people and we put up these boundaries where we can't know or be known. That's not humility. That is pride at its root. What do we do? Get our eyes off of me and back on Jesus. He's the best friend that we've ever had. If there's ever a text that you can memorize, it's Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let us have the same mind as Jesus, who though he was God, did not use that as something to his own advantage, but what did he do? He humbled himself, fully loving the Father, fully trusting the Father, saying, you've got this, Lord, so I'll humble myself in obedience even to death because I know you will bring me up. That is the way that you and I can follow in the footsteps of Jesus to be the best friends that this world has ever seen.